Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We talk some hoops and we get into some other stuff too. Alongside Chris Dorch of Blue Ribbon, I'm Kevin Ingram. And it is great as always to have you with us. And Chris, this week we're going to do something different and special with it kind of being the offseason for basketball. We're going to take a break from the transfer portal and we're going to talk about basketball movies. And I will let you introduce our esteemed panel because... You know tons about movies, way more than I do, and these two that we've brought in are ringers, and they, they know pretty much everything there is to know about movies, so so make the introductions if you would. Well, I, I brought in some big-time ringers. Uh, one is my longtime pal, Mike DeCourcy. Uh, I've known Mike for years, longer than we care to admit, but not only is, is he an expert in, in basketball, but he, he's an expert in, in movies. Mike, how many years have you watched all the best Oscar nominations and then written about them? It's since 1985 was my first year. The impetus for that was The Right Stuff, which I believe was nominated in either 83 or 84. Right. I tried to get my wife to go see it, and she just wasn't buying. And so we didn't see it prior to nom- track prior to the Oscar show. And then subsequently I did see it, and it's spectacular. And I'm like, I'm never doing this again. I am never. <laughs> so every year since 1985. And there's some interesting adventure stories that I've gone through in order to keep that streak alive, including one time when I was covering a fight in Vegas in March of, I think, around 85 or 86. I think it was 86. I was covering a fight in Vegas, and there was a theater. It, I, there, I, there was nothing to do in the afternoon. It might have been fight day. I can't remember now. But there was nothing to do in the afternoon. So there's a theater showing Kiss of the Spider Woman. So I took a cab out to the theater and I saw the movie. Great. Okay. So I come out and I can't get a cab and there's no, this is an Uber days, right? This is not, you know, so I can't find a cab. So I start walking. The strip doesn't look that far, but the thing you learn in the desert, everything is farther than it looks. Yes. I can't even remember how I eventually got back. I think I waved down a cab after walking about (laughs) two miles, but uh, I made it. So I'm here to talk movies. Excellent. In my, our other ringer is somebody that I know real well. Uh, I, I once said that I had a best friend growing up, so I made one. It's my son, Chris Dorch II. Uh, he and Mike have actually, we've, we've, we've kicked it together. We went to see Steely Dan back way back when uh, in Cincinnati with Mike and his wife, and that was a great time. But Chris is a film historian, and he's also executive director of the Chattanooga Film Festival, which is coming up here in about a month, right, Chris? It sure is. Uh, I also have the uh, uh, the the distinction of actually going to see one of the movies that I'm sure that it's going to be discussed on today's show with you in the theater, uh, which is of course Hoosiers, and uh, that was my first theatrical. Try not to see, show your dad that you're crying in the seat next to him. Experience. So that was a, that was a big formative <laughs> one, uh, and we did that later again at Field of Dreams. Uh, so uh, yeah, there you go. To show show you that I wasn't crying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not crying. You're not crying. No one was crying. It was fine. <laughs> All right. There, there's no crying on this show either. So uh, we'll, we'll get going. And uh, what we're going to do, we're going to sort of just make the rounds, and uh, we'll we'll each choose two feature basketball features, and we'll we'll choose one, and then we'll kind of go go a round table here, and then. After we choose two feature films, we'll do one documentary film. So, uh, Chris, what what order do you think we should go in? I I mean, you and I, as as the regular host here, we should go last. We should let our guests go first, right? Always, yes. The guests should always go first. So I say that that Mike should go, followed by Chris the second, then you, and then I'll bring up the rear. All right. 
Well, let's get it started with this uh, special edition of our uh, Blue Ribbon Podcast, our special basketball movie edition. Mike, you do the honors and make the first selection. Well, I, I appreciate being able to go first because that means I get to select what is clearly the greatest of all basketball features, and that is White Men Can't Jump. <laughs> white Men Can't Jump gets basketball on every level, even though it's completely based on the pickup scene in Southern California. It understands the game. It understands the culture. It's hilarious. The first half hour of it, it's hard to hear. Every, it, when I saw it in the theater, it was hard to hear everything because the laughter, not not others, because I saw it like with 10 people because it was a matinee, <laughs> but my own, it was hard to get every line. It was so funny. Uh, I, I, I've actually had the chance to have breakfast with Ron Shelton, the director, who also did Bull Durham, uh, a wonderful filmmaker, wonderful guy. I've had a chance to, to meet with him twice because we have a mutual friend in California and he's a delightful person. And as I said, he, he was a former minor league catcher. And so he gets basketball, he gets sports and he, he just did a magnificent job on this. I also know Marcus Johnson a little bit uh, who, uh, who, who, who plays the most, maybe the most memorable small character in a movie ever. Uh, just did, did just hilarious scene that he did on the playground where he told everybody, I'm going to go, go to my car, grab my gun, shoot everybody. <laughs> One of my all time favorite lines. And of course we're going to sizzler and all that. There's so much in that movie. Uh, I, I, I white man can't jump. If you have not seen it, you must. It is an absolutely great movie. All right, Chris, the second you're up. You know, uh, here's where I, I would almost go with Teen Wolf, just so I'm not going with the exact same thing that Mike just did. But uh, having just revisited it this week, I have to throw uh, White Men Can't Jump on the board again. And uh, I, and honestly, Ron Shelton in general, you're, you're so right, is a treasure. I'm, I'm sure even more so for, for sports fans. Uh, but uh, I, I'd, I'd heard a story about Ron that I, I'd always loved. You mentioned he was a, a minor league catcher. I'd read that he was on the road with his team once and caught uh, the movie Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch and saw that movie in the theater, pretty much quit the team the next day, stayed in the town where it was playing, and watched it again every day for a week. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, I'm very partial to Peckinpah and very partial to the Wild Bunch, so I always love that story about Shelton. And I always feel like Shelton's a guy like, kind of like Aaron Sorkin that doesn't, you know, always, you know, even though he's a well-known filmmaker, he might not get enough credit for what a great dialogue writer he is and it it kind of inspired me to pull up the screenplay for white man can't jump and like you're saying those first 30 minutes i mean it's like reading a scene from mash it's it's wild there's a million characters with all great dialogue coming out of their mouths and the movie just moves a mile a minute and one of the all-time great scenery chewing performances from wesley snipes there i mean that guy is on fire every second he shows up and somehow harrelson manages to match that so man I, i'm with you I, I really think it's great and there's very few films that i think get the street culture of basketball right uh, i there's not that many things i can think of i mean maybe like sunset park above the rim where you get a little bit of a look into that world but certainly not the hustling side of it as much and that it, it was kind of an easy choice for my first pick 
Great selection there uh, from both of you. It's funny, Mike. You know, mentioned the scene where he said, "I'm going to go back to the car and get my gun." Like that—that's the first thing I go to when I, I think about that movie, and, and and also the scene, you know, where they they, they hustle him with, with Woody, uh, Woody Harrelson. So, uh, yeah, that's a yeah a, a great first selection from both of you guys, from Mike DeCorsi and Chris Dorsch just second. Uh, you know, I think on the other end of the spectrum might be Hoosiers, the uh, the 1986 uh, film with, with Gene Hackman, who coaches the the fictional Hickory High to the state championship in Indiana. It's actually based on uh, a true story with, with the uh, Milan High School 1953-54 team. And, and it's funny, I, I, and I know Chris is probably going to pick this one too. So I kind of I'll, I'll tell a couple things uh, off to the side here. Uh, my friend Dad Modlin, his his father was a weatherman in Indianapolis, and he had this uh, collection of vintage microphones. And uh, when they were filming Hoosiers in Indiana, they asked if if they could borrow some of his collection. So there's a scene where uh, I think they're either at the regional tournament or at the state tournament, and they pan down press row, and you see all these mics lined up there. And th- those are from my friend's uh, father's collection. And, and he even gets a, a shout-out in the credits at the end. So I always kind of watch for it to kind of scroll through there and see that if I, if I come across that movie on TV. And also had another friend, uh, I think, I think her, her grandparents were actually from Milan, so I remember talking to her about that and that whole story and just, how it uh, you know fit in with the actual true team? So I think Hoosiers might be my first selection here. It's definitely mine too, Kevin. And I don't have any great stories like knowing Ron Shelton or having a friend who had microphones. <laughs> I had my in my sports writing class at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. One of my students' uh, grandfathers was on the Milan team. And she was like, what should I write about? And, you know, I, I make them write a profile for their midterm. And I'm like, write about your grandfather. And it really turned out to be a great story. The reason I like Hoosiers uh, above all sports films is, one, the authenticity of it. And, two, uh, how much it depicts a love for the game. And, you know, 90% of the cast and crew were, were from Indiana, Six of the eight uh, players on the on the team actually played high school ball. Ironically, the the one who didn't was uh, was Jimmy Chitwood, who was played by Morris Bolanis. He was an all state golfer in in Indianapolis, but he got cut from his high school basketball team three times. And they the, the director uh, David Anspaugh just happened to see him in an open gym and and asked him to come out. And, you know, that scene at the end where he makes the big shot, one take. Wow. Uh, but uh, Angelo Pizzo, who wrote the screenplay, and it's cool because Angelo and, and, and David Anspaugh were uh, fraternity brothers at, at uh, IU, Indiana. But he had a great quote that, that really sums up why I love Hoosier so much. And, and, again, this is Angelo Pizzo, the screenwriter. I found it interesting the unique fabric of basketball in Indiana, how it's interwoven with the culture and the meaning and importance of basketball. And I was particularly drawn to the time as well. The early fifties have always interested me because I suppose it was the last era or last period of true regionalism before television sort of homogenized the consciousness, the language of the subcultures of America. So that kind of encapsulates what all and why all Hoosiers mean so much to me. All right, we've made one selection on our features. We'll go back around the horn again, and uh, Mike DeCourcy is up next. I think that I, I'm, I'm curious uh, uh, whether or not anyone on the panel has seen my second selection because it's a bit 
relatively obscure. It's a 1977 movie called One on One. I stars. There you go. Stars Robbie Benson. Yep. And Robbie Benson in the, in the 70s was kind of a child star, an yeah. idol kind of guy. And what not, no one really knew was he was a baller. I mean, he could really hoop. And, and he had a great interest in the sport. And he actually, with his father, wrote the screenplay for one-on-one. And it's it, one of the things that's compelling about it is that you hear now this idea that there, there's never been more cheating and college recruiting and that sort of thing. And uh, you go, and this was 1977 and they knew that that kind of stuff was going on because it's right there in the film script and it's in the film. Uh, and so that idea that, uh, that a player who was a hot prospect could be, you know, could be a bot or could be wooed with, uh, with, with rule breaking was, was not new in 1977. So the idea that it's worse now, I've, I always try to remind people, uh, like I said, I mean, that's a long time ago. I, I was still in high school, so <laughs> it's a long time ago. So, and, and the, the movie itself, uh, I, I did not know this. I looked it up in, in preparation for this. 86% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which I was pleased to see, which means <laughs> that the critics understood that it, it, it you know, there, there are elements of it that, um, yeah, aside from Robbie, who really, like I said, could really play, uh, I, I would have liked to seen. Uh, the basketball scenes from the other players maybe be a little bit more realistic, a little bit better, but they were good enough. And yeah. he, was, he, he showed that he could play. And, and I, I thought he did it, gave a nice performance in the movie. Um, uh, the GD Spradlin who plays the, his coach, a uh, fine character actor. We've lost a, a long, a long while ago, uh, does a great job as, as the coach in the film, uh, overly oppressive, but not, you know, not unlike blue chips, which is not a film that I like. Um, where Nick Nolte tries to pretend he's Bob Knight, it just really drove me crazy. I mean, he, Spradlin has his own character, and and it and it's a severe character, but it's his own, and so I really like that about the film as well. A nice little soundtrack as well with that Paul Williams contributed to, uh, Seals and Crofts. It, it, all in all, it's a it's a it's it's certainly worth the time, and it is interesting, like I said, to see how much of basketball, college basketball, the problems, the good things about it that existed 45 years ago still do. Good choice. Now, Chris Dorsch, a second. I, I, I hate to be fun fact guy about every movie on our list here, but uh, <laughs> I also have a, a big place in my heart for one-on-one. And uh, I got to give props to the 30-second uh, performance by a 19-year-old Melanie Griffith as a hitchhiker in that movie. <laughs> uh, uh, and also, I, I had a big Annette O'Toole crush as a young man, so that, that's peak era Annette O'Toole for me. Uh, really liked that movie. I'd also heard that Robbie was actually born with a heart defect and kept that from pretty much everyone who made the the film with him and was actually starting to get short of breath and things during some of the scenes that they filmed. So he really put it on the line to make that movie, especially if you consider what he put into the script with his dad. Uh, uh, but speaking of dads and that ultimate uh, movie going experience that I, uh, I outlined with my own dad at the, at the beginning of the show, my next pick is Hoosiers. And uh, something you didn't mention dad, when you mentioned uh, Anspa and, and uh, the screenwriter is that those two gentlemen have kind of cornered the market in great heartwarming sports movies. They also wrote, and directed Rudy together. Uh, they have another film that they made. Uh, it's a soccer movie. So well, clearly this is a guy that loves to tell a great sports story that kind of explores the triumph of the human spirit. And 
for my money, there might not be anybody that does it any better. Uh, Hoosiers is just that great, you know, I, I think a movie that also uh, for, for dealing with, with sports uh, and, and basketball can really be enjoyed by people that, you know, uh, a good example for me is uh, when the Queen's Gambit came out a while ago, my, my pop, who's never been a, a fan of chess, could suddenly, you know, enjoy the intricacies of that game. And I think one of the great things about Hoosiers is even if you're not into the sport that's its subject matter, it finds a great way to draw you in with incredible characters and even better actors. I, I again, revisited uh, the film for this list, and it's just good to see Dennis Hopper at this point. I, mm-hmm. I don't agree with the man's politics, or didn't when he was alive, but, man, I, I absolutely treasure him as an actor. Good choices here as we continue our Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast Special Basketball Movie Edition, where we're going around the horn in our esteemed panel, uh, making choices. Uh, we're moving through our second round of feature films here. All right, for my second one, I, I decided to A, go for a laugh, and B, uh, do something that I thought one of our guests, that being Mike DeCourcy, would appreciate. I, I know where he's from, so I decided to go with The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh for, for my second choice. It was made in 1979. There are lots of stars, including uh, Julius Irving, Dr. J, and Metal Lark Lemon, and there, there are a bunch more famous basketball players in there. But the team is struggling as the Pittsburgh Pythons. They rebrand as the Pittsburgh Pisces with all the players, uh, I think, born under that sign. Uh, the, the one, you know, And I haven't actually seen this movie in a while, but the one thing I remember, I remember what the court looked like. And I remember that they opened the roof on Pittsburgh Civic Arena, and there's like a scene with a hot air balloon. Mike, you probably remember this more than I do, but I was fascinated with the fact that they could open up that roof. And I, I know that's something that, you know, in kind of the early years of that arena they did, and I think as it went along, they, they didn't do that anymore. But right. um, I, I thought that uh, you would appreciate that, the fish that saved Pittsburgh. I do have a story about that. Um, they actually, you said they... They, they they made it in 1979. They released it in 70. They released it in 79. Gotcha. They made it in eight. And here's how I know that: because only for the first semester that I that I was in college did I live on campus at Point Park University in downtown Pittsburgh. So September to December of 1978. And when they were shooting that film on a Sunday night, around 11:30 or so, there's a scene in the movie where fireworks go off. So they decided to shoot that scene on a Sunday night around 1130 or so. (laughs) And they lit up the whole uh, South side of Pittsburgh with fireworks. And, you know, we're trying to sleep and all of a sudden these (laughs) fireworks are going off and, you know, uh, the entire dorm like shifts to the other side of, you know, everybody's on the, the, the South side now of the dorm so they can look and see what the heck is going on. And we found out that's why uh, there were fireworks going off on a, late September, early October <laughs> night, whatever it was. So uh, that, that, that was my small contribution to fish that saved Pittsburgh, I guess. All right, Chris. Well, I, I hate to be cliche and, and repetitive, but I'm going to go with white men can't jump. We are, after all, picking our favorites. Um, as Mike said, it, it's just so hilarious. But to me, the chemistry of the lead actors was great. Snipes and, and Woody Harrelson had actually been in the Goldie Hawn movie, Wildcats, together. So they had a relationship, but they almost didn't get paired. This is crazy, and I'm, I'm trying hard to visualize it. Uh, creative artist agency were really pushing for Keanu Reeves to uh, play uh, Woody's character. And it turns out he cannot ball. <laughs> <laughs> and Woody even said, if he could play ball just a little bit, 
I'd have never gotten it. They, uh, Ron Shelton also went to see John Cusack in Chicago, and he was bigger than big at the time. But but he actually was really into kickboxing, like he was in uh, in the Cameron Crowe film. Uh, Say anything, yeah. Anything. So uh, so those those two guys ended up being paired together, and they were just great. Ne- neither of them were six feet, and and they had to do a little a camera pyrotechnics to get him to dunk and stuff. But Wesley was a great athlete. A lot of people forget he was also in major league. Remember he played Willie Mays Hayes. Uh, he was a great athlete, but didn't know how to really hoop it. But they said by the end that he really learned how to play ball. And again, kudos to Ron Shelton, who also did Bull Durham, uh, Tin Cobb, Cobb, which he wrote and directed. And I thought was great. Tommy Lee Jones, of course, played Ty Cobb. So, Again, authenticity and appreciation of the game, and just funny as hell. Uh, White men ch- can't jump is my number two favorite. Yeah, Keanu Reeves was more of a football player. He, he was Johnny Utah, of course, in Point Break. That's right. But, but he had a, that devastating knee injury that, that kind of limited his career and ended up you know, chasing down uh, Bodie. He went all the way to Australia to track him down. All right, we've, uh, we've done our feature films. And now we're going to move ahead and uh, each choose a basketball documentary that we enjoy. Mike DeCourcy's up first. Yeah, I kind of figured there would be a log jam in one particular area. So I decided to go with two that, that are not the obvious choices. And my first one is a movie called Once Brothers. And Once Brothers tells the story of Vlade Divac and Drazen Petrovic, uh, who were members of one of the great basketball teams ever which was the yugoslavian national team circa 1990 uh they won the the goodwill games in i believe it was 89 uh against a team that had alonzo morning and some others uh they were they were absolutely magnificent to watch it was some of the most beautiful basketball i've ever seen and they were teammates on that obviously great friends and then uh the nation of yugoslavia was basically divided into multiple pieces. And by 1992, when the Olympics came around, Vlade was playing for Serbia and Drazen was playing for Croatia. And a rivalry developed because of the the national split between the two of them. They had been so close. And then because the the nation split uh, and and, and it's been a while since I've seen the film, uh, really 11 years, I think. Uh, this was part of the original 30 for 30 series, not what has now become branded as 30 for 30, yeah. which uh, ESPN made a wise choice in doing that because the original 30 for 30 group was so strong and was such a strong brand. Uh, it was one of the one of the original 30, and I considered it of the 30 to be the second best of the group uh, behind uh, the the uh, the film, the two uh, the two Escobars uh, about soccer. I, I thought that Once Brothers was the second best of that group. And and, it, and to me, as two, uh, it, some others in that group get more attention. Once Brothers was an absolutely shattering movie. It follows Vlade uh, going back to Croatia, uh, going to Drazen's grave. It, it's, it's absolutely one of the most uh, emotionally wrenching documentaries I've ever seen. Uh, and, and how that, you know, how that national rivalry became a thing because there was one incident where somebody said something uh, or wore a shirt or something like that, uh, that just wasn't, didn't hit quite the right tone on the other side of the border and they never were the same. And then Drazen was killed in an automobile accident 
And so they never were able to rectify that division. And it's, uh, like I said, just an absolutely shattering uh, picture and, and one that is, uh, uh, doc- documentaries often teach you a lot, but moving you emotionally is, is not common. And when it does, it, it's really special. And that's why Once Brothers is a great film. Good selection. Here, here's Chris Dorsch, just second, uh, choosing our basketball documentary. You know, uh, I, I think uh, we're probably, at least if I know my dad very well, going to hear a little bit more about Hoop Dreams uh, for the rest of this episode. Uh, <laughs> but I actually went with uh, The Last Dance, which uh, any documentary film that can keep me captivated for pretty much 10 straight hours on a Saturday has, has my absolute respect. And, uh, you know, as much as I love Hoop Dreams, and I think it's, it's such a great, you know, uh, uh, sort of an origin story uh I, I found the last dance to be you know to me if there's one basketball documentary i put in the time capsule and send it to space to show you know alien species what what basketball is and what one of the most iconic players of all times you know legacy is uh the last dance is just unbelievably thrilling filmmaking you know, I, I really enjoyed The Last Dance also. And, uh, you know, they, they showed episodes each Sunday night for several weeks. And it, w- it was last year when, you know, the, the COVID thing had everybody at home. So it was, you know, it turned I think it was really highly rated. But it, it, was, it, it was something that, be, that became appointment viewing for me and for, for lots of people to just kind of sit down and remember that time frame with Michael Jordan and, and those great Bulls teams. There was one funny aside to that. We we were doing our morning show, and we we'd done that show for years. And and one of my running bits I did on that show was that the flu game was, was a bunch of BS. I, I said that for years that I, I thought all that was like way over exaggerated. The whole Michael Jordan flu game against Utah. And then so they did the episode where they talked about him getting the pizza, and, and some of that sounded a little shady too, but, you know, how he got the pizza and he got food poisoning, and, and boy, that, that just, like, opened the floodgates for me. It's like, I've been telling you guys all these years that that flu game, man, that they exaggerated <laughs> they, they all that. They definitely printed the legend on a couple of things. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and uh, I heard somebody make the joke that some of it was based on a true story because you had Michael's recollections and then you had the recollections of the yeah. others. But the, About four different sides than the truth. <laughs> right, that's exactly right. But the last dance, it was so well done. I really enjoyed that as well uh, i think for my documentary selection it's also part of that espn series um i, I chose celtics lakers best of enemies and, and that's another one where if you remember watching those teams back in the 80s and i was a teenager back then and, and i mean th- those teams and players were just larger than life it was a three-part documentary about the uh, the boston and la rivalry back in the 1980s and they did a really good job of telling the stories and they were able to get pretty much all the people that were involved to, to go on camera and speak about it and, and it was narrated, you know, from two different spe- perspectives. Ice Cube did the uh, narration from the Lakers fan perspective, and Donnie Wahlberg did it from the Boston Celtics side. And uh, there was just so much good footage and, and, and just all those different uh, things about that rivalry and you know, the, the wins and losses by both teams. But the one part that got me the most was when the Lakers finally won the, uh, the title in the Boston Garden in 1985, and they showed this scene in the Lakers' locker room where they're in there celebrating. they got the champagne and everything else. And you see coming through the door, Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish still dressed in their Celtics warm-ups, coming in there to, to congratulate those guys. That, that really got me. I, I rewound and watched that scene several times because it was just, it was just crazy to think. I mean, they, you know, those, those, those have been really nasty games and series. And you think about the McHale you know, clothesline on, on Kurt Rambis in that one game. And you know, to see those two come through the door and, and pay their, you know, give them props for, for winning that series, I thought that was really cool. But I, I just really enjoyed kind of going back to that period of time and, and thinking about those teams again. Um, I appreciate you guys clearing the decks for me to, <laughs> <laughs> to go to hoop dream. 
because I've got a lot to unpack. Uh, starting with, uh, I got to know Kevin O'Neill very well. Of course, he was coach of Marquette at the time and got to know him very well when he was at Tennessee. And he told me a lot of kind of insider stuff, some of which I can't remember or repeat because Kevin Kevin's vocabulary was famously uh, on the fall <laughs> side. Uh, but, but here's what I like about this. And, and I've got a little bit of experience and I know Mike does too. Uh, uh, when you write a book, uh, you start out thinking you're going to go one way and it's uncanny. And I've written six. It's uncanny how they take 180 degree turns after you do your research and you talk to people uh, your name's on the cover, but it's hardly a one-man show. And, and all the people that help you and point you and direct you. And that's exactly what happened with Hoop Dreams. Steve James, Peter Gilbert, and Frederick Marks were the filmmakers. Their original intention, guys, as you know, was to make a 30-minute short film to be broadcast on PBS. Hmm. Well, five years later, 250 hours of footage later, they come up with a 170-minute documentary uh which is brilliant everybody knows the story about william gates and arthur ag two guys uh desperately trying to get out of the projects of chicago through basketball and their ups and downs but it was just a brilliant piece of filmmaking again uh, in in my class that i teach it's supposed to be sports writing but it, it winds up being sports storytelling and i use hoop dreams a lot one class, I, I showed them the whole film, you know, uh, not in uh, on successive days, but it's just such a brilliant piece of work. A couple of crazy things, uh, and, and God bless uh, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert uh, for their championing of this film for so long. I think it really got things changed at, at the, the Academy, which snubbed the film for best documentary, but ironically, and people don't know this, it was nominated for an Oscar, only it was for best editing. Hmm. At the time, it was only the second uh, documentary uh, to be nominated for best uh, editing. I bet you guys can't guess the first. Anybody want to give it a shot? That would be Woodstock. Uh, ah. Oh, of course. God. Ah. Yeah. That was the first documentary that was ever uh, selected for best editing Oscar, and Hoop Dreams was the second. But it got totally snubbed in, in in best documentary film or best documentary long form film, and that really bummed me out uh, because it's just such a heartwarming story, and it, it just the the level of of embeddedness that the the filmmakers got, uh, and for five years, I mean, these kids, it's like the film Boyhood where. Uh, you, you, they filmed a, a kid for 13 years of his life. Uh, they were through all the tough times from, uh, you know, junior high to high school and trying to get a college scholarship. Just love the film. Uh, I'll close my bit by, I found a great quote from Robert Greene, who's, who's a documentary filmmaker. If you're not familiar with the Criterion Collection, boy, can my son tell you about that. <laughs> uh, it's a collection of, of reissues of great classic films. And they've got one of, of hoop dreams, but they always have an essay and a guy named Robert green wrote this, a, a quote that I lifted. There isn't better argument for the social value of long form nonfiction filmmaking than hoop dreams and sports have never been put into such careful context 
where the dramatic power of winning and losing is woven into the narrative construction of characters' lives rather than overwhelming it. Hitting a last-second layout matters, but only because the boys' dreams register as meaningful, intricate, and real. There's a reason Roger Ebert called it the great American documentary. So uh, that sums up my thoughts on hoop dreams. Um, I do have a, uh, I don't know, I'd have a second choice if, if I was had a gun to my head. It's another 30 for 30 uh, called The Guru of Go. Um, it was about uh, Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball and Loyola Marymount, the Paul Westhead team that tried to shoot it every two seconds or mm-hmm. whatever. And, of course, we all know Hank Gathers uh, passed tragically, and that one gets me every time too. But Hoop Dreams is the one for me. Well, guys, this has been terrific. Uh, our special basketball movie edition of our Blue Ribbon podcast, Mike DeCorsi from the Sporting News, Chris Dorch II, film historian and director of the Chattanooga Film Festival, joining us. Uh, I'm Kevin Ingram. Chris Dorch do our show uh, a couple times a month during the off season and every week uh, during the college basketball season. But, guys, thank you so much. Uh, this is really fun, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah, have me have me back for that that next Ron Shelton deep dive. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's going to do it for this edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk to you next time.